Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. My co-host, the creator of the show, and the archivist supreme, Tom Jokic, is with me. Hey, Christopher. Okay. This is it. We're finally back. It's been a very, very long hiatus. Feels good. It does. It feels good. This is episode 401, which means it's the first episode of the fourth season. I am so excited to be back. As you know, and as some of our listeners know, I had a bit of a setback health-wise, and we weren't quite sure, you know, when or if the show was going to continue. I am so pleased. But here we are. (laughs) I am so pleased to be back. And, you know, we're going to start off our new season On a rather sad note, because we just lost Neil Peart from Rush. A major loss in the music world. Absolutely. And for the record, for the rest of this episode, we're going to be calling him Neil Peart, because that's how we grew up saying his name, even though I think the correct saying of his name was Neil Peart. That's how Ah. everyone else is saying it now, and... We did, we did find out about Rick Ocasek. <laughs> that, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Um, but and I just, by the way, Christopher Weird is the incorrect pronunciation of my name. It, just, it is. Just, okay. you know, for future reference. So the A is silent and it implies a double E. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Christopher, as you know, uh, but I'd like to explain to our audience, especially if you're new, the point of this show is to play classic interviews from the past and also put them in some music historical context as to where the band was or where the artist was at the time. And so there is so much that we have in our extensive archives. You've interviewed so many people. I've been part of interviews with, with a lot of people myself. You've undersold your role, by the way, <laughs> at searching for pearls. Gems among the detritus of the yeah. rock and roll world. <laughs> well, you know, you did so many at much over the years as the interviewer, and I often fell into these interviews yeah, that's what because you said. of convenience, right? And you got some good ones, though. I did. But I'm more of a radio producer than a DJ or announcer. But every once in a while, I was the only guy available, so they would send me out. You were the only one around to talk to Mick Jagger. You know what? I, that's true. And that, that was, I think that was last season that we ran that, that interview. Wow. And somebody needed to talk to Mick for whatever it was, seven minutes or 12 minutes or whatever it was. And they said, uh, Tom, will you do it? And I'm going, are you kidding? Everyone else said no. <laughs> hey, Tom, what else we got coming up? Well, Christopher, we've got a great interview with Peter Frampton. Really early career interview just as Frampton Comes Alive is really starting to take off. So we're going to share that with you this week. But first, Rush. A Monday warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. There it is. That's the great Tom Sawyer from Rush. Perhaps their most recognizable song. And as a drummer, it's the song that I air drum to the most. <laughs> Stuart Copeland said that Neil Peart was the most air drummed to drummer of all time. Yeah, absolutely. And that his makes sense? style seems like pretty tough parts to be able to replicate well, yeah, by an amateur. Right, but when it's air drumming, you can't hear the results. <laughs> the flaws right? are not obvious. That's right. That's okay. right. <laughs> so Neil Peart's style was so mesmerizing. You can listen to a Rush song from beginning to end and only listen to Neil Peart's drumming, and it can be an enjoyable experience all its own. Such a loss, only 67 years old. And, by the way, Christopher, glioblastoma was what took him, brain cancer, Mm -hmm. the exact same cancer that took Gord Downey. Yes, I remembered that. 
Permanent Waves. Rush's seventh album was recorded at Moran Heights Studio in Quebec with long-standing producer Terry Brown. It represented, incredibly, the first time the band had stepped away from that deadly album tour rinse and repeat cycle that takes such a toll physically and creatively. In this interview, Getty Lee, thoughtful and engaged as always, talks about how Rush broke the burnout pattern to create what became at the time their most successful album. We were tired of going through the whole routine where you tour for eight months and be totally exhausted and go straight in the studio, write an album, record it, mix it, you know, right coming off the road and all under a high-pressure situation. And it was about time that we sort of went, hey, wait a second, you know, maybe we can write better if we're not tired <laughs> and we don't have so much pressure on us. So we decided that we'd take a couple months off before we did the album and uh, in that time we'd all write little things individually and we all got together after about a month and uh, we went to this little farm and we spent two weeks writing and it, it came really easily as compared to the usual situation and it was a lot of fun you know we really enjoyed it for a change rather than being having all this pressure on our heads it was it was quite a relaxed way to write here getty talks about writing a concept album when we started writing this it just sort of happened it was uh one morning alex and i started putting it down while neil neil was working on lyrics down down the road in a little cottage and uh we, the pieces just started to fall together we spent about eight hours i guess piecing the music together and then uh, mm -hmm. once we had the the uh the feel that we wanted for it it didn't really change much until recording you mentioned earlier that you know this the first time in a long time that it has not really been a, a concept lp and because of this case is it easier to put together i mean when you, I, I would think when you're looking at a concept to uh, one long story might get kind of tedious after a while what about something like this well it's it's not really easy or something more difficult it's just different you know when when you're doing a conceptual thing you have this picture of the story that's always in your head mm -hmm. so it's it's you know it's like doing a soundtrack to a film the film is always running through your head so you always have a point of relation and you always have something to inspire music you always have some kind of visual you want to capture uh, whether it be lyrically or musically that really is a kind of a cool behind the scenes glimpse of how that band works that's great there are creative ways of dealing with songs that you are tired of. You know, some bands almost re resent to a certain degree having to uh, to go way back to early material and fans scream for it. Mm -hmm. What about Rush, when people start yelling for things from the early days? Uh, do you try to appease them if you can, or do, do you, well, would we, you rather put it in the, in the past and keep it there? There's certain tunes that, that have to bite the dust after a while. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> but... Uh, we try to, to play a, a fair amount from, at least something from every album that we've done. I mean, even if it's just a token couple of tunes. And the tunes that, that we do start getting sick of, we just sort of pile them all together in a giant medley. And we'll, mm -hmm. That li little mini tour that we did in the summer, uh, we had a medley of about five tunes that were all ex-opening tunes that <laughs> we didn't know what to do with. So let's put them all together in a, in a big medley and go wild on it. But... I mean, I can understand from a, you know, it's not that long ago that I was a fan myself and still am. And, you know, I can certainly relate to going to a show and wanting to hear certain songs. So we do try to keep that in mind. But That's basically good. we have to move on to, mm -hmm. to things that excite us. There you go, right there. That's the fine line between playing what the band wants to play and what the fans want to hear. You put it all in a, in a short medley and get it over with. <laughs> Yes, it's hard to imagine a Rush medley somehow, but mm -hmm. there you go. The meaning of the album title and a breakdown of the odd album cover artwork follows. 
Permanent waves is basically uh, supposed to represent the spirit of music, which in this day and age where the word wave is being tossed around left and right. <laughs> new wave, old new wave. New old wave, old wave. No I mean, wave, yeah. Right. When you get right down to it, it's all, you know, the spirit of music is a permanent wave. You know, it's the spirit of music is related to the heart of music, which we all play, whether we're new or old. You know, it's, it's all one and the same. So that's basically what the album title is about. Now, if you can, try describe and describe this, that yeah. album cover. Well, it's a pretty bizarre little scene here. It certainly is. <laughs> it, it is the finest album cover you've ever had. I, I think so, say, too. Well, thank you. It's sort of a Holocaust scene on the front, and uh, amidst this confusion of all these heavy waves crashing down over... It's a tidal it's sort of a play on the, wave scene. Yeah, right? it's a play on the word waves, really. But uh, There's this heavy scene, and all these waves are crashing down on this little man who's leaning against a uh, signpost, very unaware, is waving at this beautiful girl who's uh, just about walking off the cover and she's got a cute little permanent wave hairdo <laughs> yes. and uh, her, her, every hair is in place in the middle of this heavy catastrophe interesting stuff that's Getty Lee from Rush around the time of the album Permanent Waves now part two of the interview from the era of moving pictures Tom, whatever they may have intended regarding breaking that tour record cycle, the band kept up an amazing pace back in the early 80s. The follow-up to Permanent Waves, Moving Pictures, came out a year later, followed by the live exit, Stage Left, the same year. That album went four times platinum in Canada and the U.S., topping the previous album by a considerable margin. Here, Getty talks about how Max Webster lyricist Pi Dubois contributed to the song Tom Sawyer. When we were in uh, Phase One Studios recording Battle Scar with Max Webster, uh-huh. uh, Pai Dubois gave us a copy of a song or a piece of poetry called Louis the Warrior, which he thought we might be interested in doing. So uh, Neil sat down with these lyrics, and they were very interesting lyrics, so uh, Neil sat down with them and sort of arranged them more to our format, and uh, the song became Tom Sawyer, and we wrote some music for it, and... Uh, it turned into a wonderful song. How, how and why did it change from Louis the Warrior to Tom Sawyer? Well, uh, they, they were... Besides you know, the fact that they rhyme. Well, Pi writes in a very abstract way, and uh, Pi writes for Pi and Max, and uh, mm-hmm. we're a different group, right? Right. So uh, we needed to shape it a bit more to our sort of style of song. So we just did some magic on it and it turned into what we have. Neil went through and, uh, yeah, and, and changed the odd bit here and there. Yeah, and you know, wrote some lyrics on his own and mm-hmm. preceded some of the, the thoughts that were in uh, Pi's piece. Wait, it was called Louis the Warrior? That is weird. Apparently. And it became Tom Sawyer. Very interesting. <laughs> well, you just talked about how big that song was. And the song Limelight was pretty big, too. So did Rush ever intentionally try to write singles? Limelight, the first single from the album, as a matter of fact, too. I guess so, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Just uh, I, I know, it's a standard question, but I, the, the single just it doesn't really mean anything to you. It's icing on the cake, I guess, at this point. Isn't it? Well, we have a very simple attitude. We write the songs, we make records, we make albums, and if there's any songs after the album is made that somebody thinks are suitable for a radio airplay in one, one way or another, then they're go ahead you know you mm-hmm. can release it that's fine mm-hmm. but mainly you're making the we, mu- don't, we <coughs> go in to make albums we don't go in to make singles and you're making those albums for yourself and your fans yeah. 
you know, I think you have to do what they did. You just have to record the best music you possibly can and let those marketing people from the record company choose the single because they don't need to worry themselves about writing a hit, I, I don't think, especially a band like Rush. Not in that era. No. I mean, now maybe, of course, now they wouldn't get on the radio anyway, right? Yeah. I guess yeah. so. I mean, I guess you're right. They they just have to do what they do and then not mind if somebody needed to edit it down for uh, radio play. Rush, worldwide ambassadors from Toronto and going all around the world and going going crazy on the road. What, eight months? Something like that? Yeah, well, let's not get exaggerated here. Oh. I know it's it sounds like a oh, long this, time. This is from the record company again, I know. So. You know, you, you got to remember who's telling you that. A famous quote, consider the source. This is true. No, it may take eight months to play everywhere we want to play, but we're not playing every day. We're mm-hmm. playing at a very uh, a relaxed pace for us, and we're not playing more than three weeks in a row without taking at least ten days off. So it may, in fact, take us eight months to get around the world or wherever we're going to go, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be a constant eight months. That's at your pace, yeah. That's right. That's good. Well, yeah, I was wondering about that because you've all got uh, families, you've all got very nice homes, you know, which you really, it never seems, get enough time to spend with both your families and your homes. Or spend at. Um, or with. Uh-huh. With the, the homes, anyway. <laughs> and for, at the families. For, yes. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So, I, but I wonder, you know, like if uh, I know that Rush's reputation was built on touring, but if you really would need to tour as much as you do, because you're still, well, I don't you're think still we hitting need a- to tour as much as we did, but we like touring, and uh, there's still a lot of people out there that want to see us play live, and we like to play live. I mean, obviously, every year we play fewer places, but we try to still get to the places that have always been with us, you right. know. And it's good for a band to keep touring, I think. I think when you go off the road, as tempting as it is, and I can understand why a lot of bands do it, because mm-hmm. it's real tempting to say, oh, okay, we'll leave out the real hard stuff and we'll just do the fun, which is making records. But I think you lose an important contact with uh, who you're playing for and uh, you know the whole reason of for doing for what you did in the first place. That's interesting. They played hundreds of shows after that clip, and the last show was August 1st, 2015. Asked about the band's final tour, Getty Lee said that that last night was a difficult night, but Neil was really struggling throughout the tour to play at his peak because of his physical ailments and the other things that were going on with him. He's a perfectionist, and he didn't want to go out and do anything less than what people expected of him. That's what drove him for his whole career. And that's the way he wanted to go out, and I totally respect that. So, Christopher, obviously those physical ailments and other things may have been the, the signs, the very first signs, that Neil was battling brain cancer. Um, you perhaps- know, so how many musicians, though, would admit to those infirmities? I mean, most people would just go out and go, just give me the paycheck. Maybe I can't play up to my own standards, but who's going to know? Right. That would be, I think, the way that a lot, a lot of people cynically would look at it. Absolutely. But he was a very private guy, and I think that sometimes... The fandom really got to him. In fact, I've seen a few uh, documentaries about it where he just, he, he so shied away from that, oh my God, Neil, you're a god, you're my hero. Right. He hated that kind of stuff in the first place. But he took great pride in his own musicianship. Yeah. So you can see that he felt something was going on five years ago, almost six now, and perhaps it was the first inkling of what was going on literally inside his head. Even though we've been told that he'd been battling it only in the last three years. 
So now, we're at part three with the 82 album Signals. That album represented a big change musically because the emphasis shifted from guitar to synthesizer. The album went platinum in Canada and the U.S., but reaction to the new sound was decidedly mixed, hmm. ranging from Rolling Stone calling it mostly a wasted effort, Ooh. cold, to <laughs> Stereo Gum calling it the most audacious album of the band's career. And I guess there's a probably more than one way that you could take <laughs> yeah, that's like what that someone, quote. That's like when someone says, wow, that, that last song was interesting. Interesting, <laughs> yes. Or... Man, I wouldn't have expected that. <laughs> that shirt you got on today? Yeah. Interestingly, Signals began as a collection of songs written for individual projects. The new album, Signals, was there any problems uh, in making it at all? It seems like every album, there's got to be at, one, at least one minor trauma. Well, it, were, You were a while in making it, had, and I know a little bit longer than you'd planned in making it. Yeah, so. actually, it did take a long time. And we were real prepared, too, which is, surprised us. Mm -hmm. Actually, a lot of the material was written uh, as individual projects as uh, when we took this long break before we did the album. Uh, everybody started writing material for their own individual endeavors. And when we got together... What, not like solo albums? Yeah, well, everyone was thinking, well, maybe we'll eventually we'll do solo albums mm. or blah, 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 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Some ego trip or another... But when we sat down together, you just can't hide stuff if you've got good stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you can't keep it, you know? No. As much as you say, I'd like to save it for myself, it eventually goes into the pot. And, and it's not like you can write and say, okay, this is something I would be writing for the band, this is something I would be writing for myself. Right. I mean, yeah. I tried to hold some back, believe me. This is too good. I'm not giving it to these guys. <laughs> but uh, eventually, I was like, here's a part that was just dying for this piece of music that you'd have. Mm -hmm. you'd, well, there's, there's no way you can hold back because, you know, Rush is the first thing that, that comes in our lives as far as music. So, And that's what we want to devote most of our time to. That's funny. They couldn't, in good conscience, save some of those better songs for their own solo albums. That's great. Yeah, it is. A few bands would be able to say that, too. Yeah. They took their time recording signals. They didn't have a deadline. Um, some songs came easily. Some involved a struggle. We didn't have any technical problems this time, you right. know, which is the reason that... You had ghosts in your machines last, last time. Last time we had right. lots of problems, technically. But this time we had no technical problems. It was all us. <laughs> really? It just took a long time to do. Some of the stuff just came very spontaneous, like New World Man was a, an example. I mean, it was recorded in a day. Are you kidding me? No. And some stuff just took countdown, was just like pulling teeth, you know? Mm -hmm. So it just took a long time. And uh, we didn't see any any point in trying to scramble to finish it because we didn't really have any deadline. So we just, you know, as long as it took is how long it took. Mm -hmm. Can I make an, an observation on what you just said there? Sure. Something like New World Man, it, it surprises me in a way that it was so quick because at least maybe it's because it's the thing that we've heard the most so far because it was a single release ahead of the release of the album but it's the thing that jumps out even when you listen to the rest of the album yeah it's real odd that that is a single right, sorry go ahead okay so it's like here are Rush moving into the direction that they feel most comfortable at the moment whereas Countdown is a lot more like previous stuff going right. back to uh, going back to a Cygnus X1 and stuff like That's that very not good... just in terms of theme but in terms of musical too it's more like traditional rush you know so it's like right. are you having to work at playing that sort of stuff now and the no, other stuff is coming e easier or what well it's it's i don't think it's a matter of that although that's a good observation the similarities between that and the older stuff i don't think it's a matter of that it's uh 
you have a certain flow in a studio, and some days it flows, and some sounds just come, and other sounds don't. But uh, New World Man was an example of a song that, uh, it was the last song we wrote. We already had the album finished pretty well, and uh, we wanted to do one more track, because uh, there was four minutes left we could fill. <laughs> you know, and you filled value it for perfectly. money, you know? That's, that's the ironic thing, is it's anything but filler. You know, it so, really is. I mean, it was, we had a real uh, easygoing approach to recording that song. We didn't want to spend days on it because we'd just done all this other stuff. We wanted something that was fresh, something that was spontaneous, and uh, just happened. Who knew that New World Man was a last-minute song? And Neil just kind of threw that together lyrically. But as we know, Neil wrote about 90% of the lyrics for Rush, if not more, and he was so well-read, and he worked so hard on those lyrics to create something that was memorable, and he certainly did. What a legacy, huh? Mm-hmm. Let's keep going with the album Signals, and in particular the first track and the second signal. <laughs> no, no, no. The second single. Say that five times really the fast. The second signal. <laughs> the song is called Subdivisions. First tune on side one is called Subdivisions. It's one of the tunes that you've got a video worked up for and some live visuals worked up for in the upcoming show, I understand, too. And lyrically, I know that Neil writes all the lyrics. Well, you guys, uh, all three of you write on one of the tunes, but so it's hard to speak for him, but you interpret the lyrics in singing them all the time in the studio and on stage so you can speak for him a little bit, can't you? Okay. Sure. Okay, growing up frustrations, it's very obvious, is what Subdivisions is about. Well, yeah, it's about about life in the suburbs and... uh, how, Which is where you guys grew up. Sure. Well, and you and Alex. It's anyway. how most of North America has grown up. You yeah. know, it's not. It's not just limited to people that live in the suburbs of Toronto. I mean, suburban way of life ever since the '60s and the mid '50s. Really, that's really the where North America has been constantly moving to the suburbs. It represents more than just a place. It's a mentality. You know, it's a, a way of life. It's a, you know, middle America, if you will, and it's a. A place that's manufactured and constructed and and kids grow up to live in it and there's no real parks or anything unless they're they're put there so as a result you have to hang around where you can you know where do you go when you want to go out and get away from mom and dad who are bagging at you where do you go you go hang around a plaza so you go become a a mall baby right So that's just a song about, you know, growing up in that environment and people that grow up in that, some people that grow up in that environment stay in that environment and they live their whole lives in the suburbs, you know, they're born, raised and die there. Mm-hmm. And other people feel uncomfortable with that kind of life because they don't feel like it's real and they don't feel like it's for them. And so the song is a bit about those who stay and those who leave and, mm-hmm. you know, those who dream about going elsewhere but never do. There seems to also be an element of, uh, of universal peer pressure I guess maybe at least in the line, be cool or be cast out. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, that's something everybody grows up with. Yeah. You know, some people deal with it easier than others. But, and it doesn't and you guys dealt with it by uh, turning to music. Sure. And, and here you, you run and hide there. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. escapes. And, you know, it's a song about escapes. Okay. So, it's, this is interesting. Even though that was a very big song and a big album, it was kind of the beginning of the end of the classic Rush era because they drifted away from the guitar-oriented sound, like you said, and they sounded a little bit less like themselves. They still sounded great on this album on Signals and still great in the song Subdivisions, but they really started to tail off after that, which 
I think had a lot to do with the fact that this music sounded less heavy and a little bit more processed. Yeah, those are harsh judgments to make because, I mean, a band, they have to pursue their own musical destiny, whatever that may be. And they have to react to new things that they're hearing, to, you know, music and instrumentation that they're experimenting with. And, um... I just don't feel that a band has an obligation to stick to the straight and narrow that was established by their past success. But they're going in the direction of synthesizers, and do you think that's a natural progression for them? Or do you think they saw, this is where music is going, we need to at least embrace that? I feel like it's just boys with their toys, you know, in the yeah. studio. I mean, there's, these are new things to play with, and they they are very creative in the right hands, you know? And why not? On the new album here, there's obvious change, continued change in the music. Do you find it's something that you've got to think about in terms of your audience? You make the music for yourselves, but you also keep your audience in mind. The change versus the uh, continuation of, of uh, things that Rush fans have liked in the past and, and almost expect of you? or Well, I mean, you gotta when, strike you, a balance when you write a song, sort. obviously, number one, you don't want to write anything that people will hate. I mean, you don't go, okay, let's write the song. I love it, but... I guess most people aren't going to like it, so let's do it anyway. Obviously, yeah, yeah. you know, you're trying to please yourself, but you want people to appreciate what you're doing at the same time. And I don't think that we, as much as we change, we still change within our own mentality, and we feel there's a lot of people out there that that expect us to change and want us to grow. Mm-hmm. And There's some people that will always want us to play Working Man. There's some people will always want us to be the band that made that song. But, I mean, that was 1974, Face Facts. You, you can't do that. I mean, nobody can do it and still grow up as a person. So change is, is good, and change is what's going to happen with this band throughout its career. It's become obvious. Yeah. And I yeah. personally think that the, a lot of the fans that have invested their time and money into us expect a certain amount of change from us and expect us to mature and not just to be stagnant. Oh, and those fans sure did stick with the band throughout all their changes. Here Getty talks about off-the-road discipline. We do sit down at home, and you know, of course, we're musicians, we like to keep in in practice but it really depends like after a real long hectic tour we come home and nobody wants to look at their nobody guitar nobody wants know? to do anything with music and I think yeah. it's good to do that to get away so that next time you pick it up you like you really want to play it and you start working at it so it really t- depends on what kind of break you're on and uh, I mean if it's just a break from touring and you know you're going right back out on the road I would say no I would say the chances of, of picking up your instrument are probably depends if there's a good ball game on you know right exactly <laughs> but uh if you're if you have some thing that you're working towards making a record or writing some songs on your own then yeah you do start you start to get that in your you blood like, you go down to the basement and start laying down right? a few things on tape i and just and, like to have a guitar line around the house so that you know you can when the urge you know when you're lying there doing something and uh, you come up with some sort of inspiration you want to grab it and start working just before we wrap up our conversation with Getty Lee of Rush, Christopher, you know him quite well. I've met Getty a number of times, and he's a, a very uh, a lo- he's a lovely guy to, to talk with. And he and I are both huge baseball fans, so we automatically just go straight to the Jays zone when we talk. But I did interview him for a special, actually, that uh, during I think it was my last year on Much. And we talked about his love of baseball. And he compared the life of the musician to the life of an athlete, the whole sort of touring and and teams being on the road and all of that experience. And uh, I thought it was a great analogy to make. Good point. Okay, so let's play one bonus clip. And this is a clip we've used before. 
This is the late Neil Peart himself in all his glory. 43 years ago in 1977, so he would have been 25, mm. talking very earnestly about lyrics he wrote for a song called Cygnus X1 on the classic Rush album, A Farewell to Kings. The theme of it really is the battle between the heart and the mind represented by two gods called Apollo and uh, Dionysus, representing the rational side of human nature against the instinctive side of human nature. And then... Uh, this causes much confusion on earth and the battle is taking place inside of each of the people. They're being torn one way and then the other way. And after this he settles down, gets married, and has a nice job. <laughs> and walks down the yellow brick road. Sends his son to college. <laughs> there you go, the late Neil Pert on what the heck that Farewell to Kings album was all about. <laughs> it's so great to hear him as a young man, 25 years old at the time. And what a perfect way to end that extensive segment as a tribute to Neil Pert and Rush. From Frampton Comes Alive, that's Peter Frampton live. Of course it is, for God's sake. (laughs) (laughs) Show me the way. Tom, by any measure, Peter Frampton has had an extraordinary career, from solo artist to band member to hired hand, Mm -hmm. throwing Teen Idol in the middle of it all. And he started young. At 12, he was in a band called The Little Ravens. At 14, he was with The True Beats. At 16, (laughs) The Herd. And then in 1968, at 18, as a member of Humble Pie, he was alongside Steve Marriott, formerly of The Small Faces. Now, at this point, Frampton was already a young veteran of the British music scene. He was a respected singer, songwriter, and especially guitar player. Mm -hmm. But of course, as we all know, the best was yet to come. Five years into a middling solo career, Frampton cut a double live album at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco called Frampton Comes Alive, featuring (laughs) (laughs) featuring hits like Baby I Love Your Way, Show Me the Way, some other songs without the word way in them. (laughs) Anyway, 8 million in sales made it the best-selling live album of all time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in this interview, it seems like Frampton is still kind of sorting out his feelings about mega success and probably aware that uh, topping the impact of Frampton Comes Alive would be an impossible task. Well, yes, but this is just as Frampton Comes Alive is taking off. Like, it is just kind of as it's happening. Ah. So it's like, I think the album's now at number one and his concerts are now selling out. Right. But they're selling out for the first time. You'll hear that in one of these clips. And so it is interesting because he's kind of going, like, this is kind of unbelievable. Wait for it, buddy. It's going to get more unbelievable as it goes on. This is where Frampton talks about being a headliner. I've been working here now on my on my own thing for, what, three and a half years? Uh-huh. And I noticed the sort of ups and downs, you know, and uh, the economic thing did affect it for a long while, you know. But... Now, I'm really enjoying, not that I haven't always enjoyed it, but for me especially, obviously, every gig is sold out, you know, and I, I can't believe that, you mm. know. And I remember playing with Edgar Winter at uh, the time of Frankenstein, and that was the same thing, you know, every gig was sold out because of Frankenstein, you mm-hmm. know, and we worked mm-hmm. so many gigs with Edgar, and that was a great, great time too. 
We've worked with so many bands and it's been great. Santana. But now it's me headlining and it is sold out everywhere. And it's, it's only been the last four months it's started to happen. He talks about something he's very familiar with and comfortable with, and that is his creative process and keeping it fresh. I just have to do exactly what I've been doing, but, but improve, which is all I've ever wanted to do all along the line. I'm not going to change anything, you know. I'll find extra gadgets to play on stage or extra new guitar sounds, and like I always have, just strive for something different and new that will turn me on, which is what's kept me going and kept me writing, finding, you know, there's not a new chord. All the chords have been played, but to me there might be a new chord that I haven't. There's, there's millions you yeah. know, of new chords, and when I find a new chord, I'll write a song around it. That's why I love playing piano, because I'm incredibly limited on piano, I'm, and I find it much easier. Um, or the songs come out a lot simpler on piano, because uh, I don't, I'm not that technically proficient on a piano. Interesting. Christopher, he loves writing on piano, but he's not that good at it. Same. Really? I'm a terrible piano player, but it makes me hear the song in a different way. That's so interesting. And you are still an active songwriter. Yes. And, you know, if, if you're new to the show, just a reminder, Christopher was, uh, you know, the first VJ on Much Music, a songwriter in himself. He was, um, you know, the tag team uh, with Alana Miles who helped create that first uh, incredible Alana Miles album and the hit song uh, Black Velvet. And, and you've been a working songwriter ever since. And so we've talked so much about songwriting on this show and the various ways of doing it. But that was unbelievable to me that Peter Frampton, and now you, Christopher Ward, play, <laughs> play poor piano, but you write on piano sometimes. Yeah, it's just a way of kind of turning things on their head. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can surprise yourself during the creative process, I think you're onto something. Excellent. Yeah. In this next segment, Frampton's very candid, I think, about his sources and his struggles. Very personal, sort of... Uh lyrics the music i don't know where that comes from just i sit down and it happens or it doesn't you know mm -hmm. and i throw out far more than i ever use does it seem to be like a, a self-analytical help in other words you can get your whatever's on your mind out and into the form of a song so it's yeah i suppose so um that is the most difficult part of my uh, my music is, is my is my lyrics, you know. To me, it's, it's the most difficult thing. Um, if I didn't have to write lyrics, I, I don't think I would, you know. Uh, I enjoy uh, singing them when I'm pleased with them. I don't enjoy singing some of them when I hate them, you know. Some of them really make me cringe. Imagine writing a song that you don't really love, but then the record company decides to put it out as a single. Yeah. And that's how you have to end your show every night with that song because that's the one forever <laughs> yeah. and you're kind of going oh my god show me the way again or do you feel like we do or or whatever like every time for the rest of your career and that's why they must be so happy when they have more than one hit single right yeah but come on I mean having a massive hit single what a burden to bear Oh <laughs> no just Take it as a gift and go with it. You exactly. Know? You have fans. Be grateful. That's right. Um, <laughs> this next segment. All right. I would love to know what people think about this when they hear it. Because Frampton tells the interviewer at one point that the direction of the interview is too deep. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see the uh, people's change in taste kind of on a mass level happening? Because when you... No, I don't, I don't really think about that. I, I can't see that, really. 
You mean you just don't deal with that? Yeah, I don't think about that. You decided not to think about yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to explain. Um, but you feel that thing happening there, that it's not, it's not as believable as it used to be, yet a lot of concrete things are changing for the better. How do you feel about that? You're getting very deep for me. I, I can't really... Or maybe I'm getting a little bit too stoned. Oh, boy, that was a bit of a slog, wasn't it? It's tough as an interviewer when you have a theoretical question, but it just doesn't land, and then you have to kind of try to explain it, yeah. and then you have to backpedal. Oh, man, that was well, a Well, most artists will help you out if you, yes. if you get into the, <laughs> the yes. deep water because they, you know, they kind of know the things they're comfortable talking about. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, they look at you like, Huh? <laughs> also, there what? are some people who are born contrarians. Madonna is one of those. Have you ever interv interviewed Madonna? I have not. Oh, thank God! Like, <laughs> because <laughs> have you? I've heard. Well, we have an interview in the in the archives, and well, it's let's not get even it out. it's not even interesting because she oh. just refutes everything that the interviewer, who is a great interviewer, mm. keeps saying to her. And another person who was a contrarian was when I interviewed her was Jewel. Oh, uh, everything okay. I said, she just kind of went, "No, no, that's not really right." And, but she never kind of gave me the benefit of the doubt. A very young interviewer, of course, she was even younger than I was at the time. But sometimes they're just contrary. They may be having a bad day, and they don't want to have a conversation. They just want to get it over with. Okay, let's get back to this interview. <laughs> <laughs> From here on, it won't be too deep, I promise. Um, Frampton talks about trying to become the best at what he does. I hope I seem very natural. I, it hasn't affected me in as much as... Uh, I think I'm the best singer and guitarist in the world, you know. I'd like to be one day, but I, I've got a long way to go, and I know that. And and no I think that's definitely the goal to shoot for. I mean, if you, you know, if, you, if you're yeah, into obviously. art, you might as well be into doing it the best, you know. An incredible thing is happening with you, particularly on this album. I think the reason, I, obviously I don't know why it's this... It's this intense, and I hope I never know. Because <laughs> it is intense. Right. But the, the thing is that I think that helped was the fact that I'd been working and working and working and learning and learning and learning and building a following all the time, you know, and making a lot of mistakes in material and singing and everything, you know. But the audience are the people that you get your yes or no from, always. You know, we had no big hit album and we were, we were getting encores and getting a big following before, you know. It was a very, very gradual thing, you know. And I feel that now it's the people that, that were those avid followers all along that another album would come out and there'd be more followers. Then they'd go back and listen to the other one. I just noticed how it's been. And then all of a sudden those people that come and see you. I've heard people say, we've been to see you 17 times, you know. I say, my God, aren't you bored, you know? Why, why come and see us that many times, you know? They said, well, it's, it's always changing, you know? And then a live album, which is what they've all been coming to see for so long, you know, and seen the changes. And then to capture a special night like that on mm -hmm. tape, which is one of the better musical nights, maybe. I think so. I think everybody plays really well on it. It had to have that effect, I suppose. Those people were going to, you, you're sure they were going to rush out and buy that one. 
You can see he's trying to make sense of the incredible surge of his popularity, and it would be something he would deal with for years to come after that. By the way, as a postscript to this interview, um, Peter Frampton recently completed his farewell tour. He had his son Julian on guitar Mm -hmm. um, because Frampton has been diagnosed with inclusion body myositis, a degenerative muscle disease. And he's been very forthright about Mm -hmm. his condition, and he's given a ton of interviews, and he's already recorded a lot of new music to release over the next few years. I believe that Peter Frampton still plans to play live shows, but there will be one-offs, special shows, probably close to where he lives, instead of tours. Right. Famous Lost Words is a production of iHeartRadio and Orbit Media. Our show is produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. Special thanks to Rob Basile, Heather Edwards, Tim Friedlander at Soundbox Studios in Los Angeles. Don't forget to get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. And stay in touch with us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod.